Well, before we continue our worship to the preaching of God's word, I invite you first to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's take a moment to remind you that uh, we are a people of confession. We are so because God has quickened the church from spiritual death to spiritual life. On this side of glory, true genuine followers of Jesus Christ live in a reality of sin, in a struggle of sin. In a state of grace, one day we'll live in a state free from sin, complete, whole, eternal in the heavens. But at this point, awaiting our Lord's return, awaiting our gathering with him, we live a perpetual life of confession, knowing that our sins are paid in full knowing that our heart belongs to Christ, but knowing that every emotion of our being hates our sin and our struggle with sin. And it's a reminder to us and an offering to God that we are totally dependent upon Him. So it's not liturgical in that regard. It's not formal. It's a heart cry. I want you to know that. And of course, of course those who are gathered corporately are not all of God's people. And so therefore the gospel goes forth and all are welcome. But God's people are people of perpetual repentance because we are the redeemed. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you that you have quickened us from death to life and we come to you a fragile and broken people made whole in the power of Christ. Quickened by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. A bride given to the Son by the Father. And as we live here in this state, we live as your witnesses. We live as those whom you have called out, made your wrong, and commissioned to go forth and be gospel light into the nations. And we must have your strength to do so. We must have your strength to walk in righteousness. You have quickened us to walk in righteousness. And you grant us strength, and we give you praise moment by moment. And where we are, where we fail, where we fall in sin, where we struggle with sin, our hearts hate it and we long to hate it all the more and fight corporately together, personally, knowing that you are a God of comfort. You are a God who meets us in all our frailties and all our weaknesses, moment by moment, day by day, and you quicken us to righteousness. So hear our hearts cry. Hear our praise to you. Hear our uh, need and our great comfort all at the same time that we belong to you. Gird us up for the battle that our lives might be lived out to your glory, that we might be a reflection of your worth and your majesty, and that we might carry the gospel well. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we return to Acts chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 18. The, the title of this morning's message is Paul's 
uh, Paul encouraged in Corinth part two. So we'll pick up that theme and we'll run uh, primarily with verses 12 through 18. So look there with me and let's read through them together. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 12, going through verse 18. We're really, we'll just read the first part of verse 18. I want to um, uh, leave you there as a reminder of what has happened and Paul being comforted there in Corinth. Verses 12 through the beginning of 18. But while Gallio was proconsul of Archaea, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, old Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And then he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenius, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Paul had remained many days longer. I want you to hold right there. Many days longer there in Corinth. And remember, that's a year and six months. His longest time in any location since he started the second missionary journey. Okay? Hold that in mind. Well, when we come to these verses and we come to the reality of God encouraging his servants, and here particularly God encouraging Paul, it's a comfort that's really what we see here. God comforting Paul. And as Americans, we know a lot about comfort or worldly comfort. We're a comfort kind of culture, right? We've even created comfort food. We have comfortable wear. Men, I have news for you. The racks fit. That's just a size higher. Okay. Relax, fix jeans. It's just a size higher. Sorry to break the news to you. I found out a, a piece of language uh, from ladies is called frumpy. When they feel frumpy or they're wearing something frumpy, that means they're wearing comfort clothes, just lounging around the house. We have comfort food. We have comfort clothes. We have comfortable living. We have the comfort of air conditioning and heat. We have the comfort of indoor plumbing. Amen. I've been places in the world where they have no indoor plumbing, and I pined for home. We know a lot about comfort, but there's a much more glorious comfort than the comfort of this world. There's the comfort of God for his people. And that's what we see here with Paul. We saw we see Paul being comforted by his God. And if you remember, God had made promises to Paul. And now we're going to see Paul come to that point, kind of that moment of truth, kind of the crossroads of seeing where those promises would really come true. If God would really keep his promises, will God keep his promises or will his promises fall vain? That's what we come to in this text. 
So remember, Paul was discouraged in Corinth. He was frightened in Corinth. And God encouraged him. He comforted him. And we know this. God is a God of comfort. That's why he tells us in Psalm 24, verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait. Wait for the Lord. Why? Because he's a God of comfort. He will encourage us. He will comfort us. He says, wait. That means in all circumstances, in all circumstances of life, in all issues of life, in all struggles, all trials, all temptations, all failures, all weaknesses, all struggles, wait. Wait upon the Lord because He is your God of comfort. Now, if you remember, uh, just to kind of bring us back up to speed in context here, in verse 2 there, Paul is comforted immediately by what? By companions. God sends him companions. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla. So here are two uh, Jewish people that he has a lot of commonality with, and they're tent makers, leather workers, same trade. And Paul goes to work for them. And they give him great comfort, just it's companionship. So God begins to comfort him with companions there in verse 2. And they become wonderful friends of Paul, lifelong friends of Paul, and co-laborers in the gospel. And there if we look uh, in verse 4, we see that he's continued to be able to support himself in ministry. He begins to work for them. He himself was a tent maker or leather worker, literally. And so he begins to be able to continue to carry the gospel, to continue to speak in the synagogue and be able to care for himself, provide for himself. He has means. And then if he meets new friends, why uh, good news from old friends is just icing on the cake. We find his fellow compadres join him there in Corinth. Silas and Timothy. And they come bearing good news and monetary means. They come bearing an offering from the church at Philippi. And now Paul is able to give himself to full-time ministry. Now he's able to be supported. The funds come back and he's able to give himself fully to the ministry. So he's there all the time in the synagogue. He's there everywhere in the square. And he's able to devote himself fully to carrying the gospel. But also, he finds out that the church in Thessalonica, he was deeply concerned about, is bearing up and remaining in the faith. And this gives him great encouragement. And then in verses 5 through 8, we see that many there in Corinth, are coming to Christ. He sees many converts from his ministry. Even Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, comes to Christ. And the church is planted where? Right next to the synagogue. There was Titus Justice. So in Titus Justice, house right next to the synagogue, and we're to, uh, it wouldn't be wrong to assume that uh, he was also there in the synagogue, at least we don't know for sure. So it's, a, it's a Jewish or, or a Greek name, maybe a God-fearer, but nonetheless related, connected. So he's brought out of the synagogue, and then the synagogue leader Crispus is brought out. And it tells us there many more are coming. And it's an imperfect verb. So that means that there is an ongoing. Many are coming to Christ. And then the next day they're out carrying the gospel. And many more are coming to Christ. And it's ongoing reality. And so there's this wave of conversions there in Corinth. This explosion of the gospel. And Paul is greatly encouraged. And at the same time, 
fear begins to well up within him. For where there has been prosperity in the gospel, there has been persecution for Paul personally. He begins to fear. And we know that Paul's ministry angered the Jewish leaders. And they see this prosperous uh, ministry of Paul. They're exploding in Corinth. And, and then to kind of rub their nose in it, the church is planted right there next to the synagogue. And if that wasn't enough, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, now comes to faith in Christ. And they're stirred up more and more and more. And listen to what Paul writes as he writes to the Thessalonians. Now he does that in Corinth. Listen to what he says when he writes to the Thessalonians. This is Thessalonians 2, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And he says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men for not all have faith. Now, we could take that in a general sense, but he's talking specifically there about the Jews. Who are now hot on his trail. And so Christ knowing this. Christ knowing the fear, the anxiety that is welling up within Paul's soul, even in the midst of this great explosion of the gospel there in Corinth. He comes to him in a night vision. And he spoke to him there. I want you to notice the language. Beginning in verse 9, the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking. Don't be silent. Now, why would you tell him that? I would encourage him to go on speaking. Don't be silent. He's been speaking the gospel. He's not been silent. But he might be a little afraid and think maybe it's time to just kind of go under wraps for a while. It's hard for us to think. We, we think of Paul as some superman, but he's, he's human. He has frailties, has weaknesses just like us. And he can get tired of being beaten. And so we don't think about Paul coming to a point of maybe shutting it down. But he's here. He's at the point of questioning, do I keep this up? Because it usually gets bad about now. And his Lord meets him and says, no, no, no. Don't be silent. Continue to preach the gospel. Continue to carry the gospel truth. Verse 10. Why? Why should you do this? For I am with you. And that's emphatic. Literally, it translates, I, it translates, I myself am with you. It's an emphatic statement from his Lord. I am with you. And then he gives him a promise. No man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. Now that promise is a promise of power. 
right when Paul is at his weakest moment. God meets him personally and makes a promise to him. And the promise comes in the context of full-on power. And here's where the power rests. He tells Paul, I am with you. I myself am with you. And that reality is true for every genuine blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ. Your Lord is with you. Wherever you go, whatever circumstance you're in, whatever he calls you to do, he is with you. And that's power. That's the power of the God who created the universe. Now resides with you personally, intimately. Wherever you go, whatever you are commanded to do in his name, he is there with you. With all power and all might, the God of the universe is now residing with you. And what you were called to do as his follower. That's power. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. How? How is this possible? According to the power that works within us. According to the power of God who resides within us. The third person of the triune God who resides within us. In the power and authority of Christ. So how do we live? We come to our crisis. We come to our crossroads. We come to the circumstances of life that are fearful for us. How do we live when we're frightened? To carry the gospel. We're frightened to communicate the gospel. The very thing that we've been commanded to do by our Lord. How do we live? When these issues of life come up. When these circumstances of life come up. Well, we live invincible. That's how we live. You have to see yourself as invincible. If Christ is with you. You are invincible. And whatever he's called you to do, until he calls you home, you are invincible. No one can stop you from obeying your God. Until he calls you home, until he's finished with you, no one will put a stop to God's command on your life. And when he calls you home, he calls you home. And you're forever in his, in his presence, eternally uh, rapture, uh, eternally rescued forever in his presence and glory. And if you're here, living invincibly, obeying him when he comes back, then you'll meet him in obedience as he comes for you. All a power and authority of God is aligned with you and your call to live in obedience to his command on your life. And to try to take that power and authority away would be like trying to take a feather and wipe away all the pollen that gets in the spring of Western North Carolina. <laughs> it can't be done. It resides with you as his child. His power and his preservation resides with you until he calls you home. Now, 
That is a gospel fact. And now we're going to see that play out in space and time as we look back on Paul's circumstances here. That's true. However, in verse 12, we find Paul in a little bit of a pinch, right? God's promise has been made, but now the circumstances of life look different. Let me just give you a little tip up front. God said, no one will harm you, Paul, while you're in Corinth. He never said, no one will attempt to harm you. Now, y'all got to make that a distinction in your life. Don't assume you're going to go out there and everybody's just going to have open arms for you when you go to call, to, to call them to Christ and repent of their sin. But here Paul's given something very specific. No one's going to harm you. So he's at a crossroads here. And actually, God seems a little far removed, quite, quite uh, frankly, because now it looks like someone is going to harm him. The, the, the Jews were certainly out to harm him. They wanted him to, they wanted to harm him. They wanted him to be punished and they wanted him to be banned from Corinth altogether. And they, they wanted that to be a, a joint reality. The punishment and the banning. They're looking for him to experience harm. God seems absent at the moment of truth, if you will. So will God's promise be unkept? Well, let's look and see beginning in verses 12 and 13. I just want you to simply see the accusation there, okay? So we can give a little context of what's going on here and see the accusation. So there in verse 12... Gallio is the pro-council. Now he's the pro-council of Archaea. That's the whole province. So he's a top dog official. He's a Roman official and he's a top dog. And it says there that with one accord, the Jews rose up against Paul and brought this accusation before the judgment scene, saying, uh, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, what they're saying is, is that Paul is preaching something that is contrary to Judaism. So it's contrary to Judaism, which is a religion that is protected under Rome. They have rights to exercise the religion of Judaism under Roman law. And they're saying this is an outlaw practice. That, that Paul is bringing. It's, it's contrary to the Torah. It's saying that this Jesus, they're saying this Jesus movement is contrary to what the Torah preaches and teaches. And you need to do something about it. This man's out of line. And you need to punish him and you need to ban him. So that's the accusation. And so Gadio, by the way, is, uh, had a history of being a very just judge. He's a very, obviously he's the high judge here. And uh, he was well-liked. He's kind of a mild-mannered man. And he was the brother of Seneca, a famous Stoic philosopher. So he was well-known. His family was well-known. And here the accusation comes. And the question comes up. Will... 
Paul really go unharmed in Corinth? Not likely. When we read verses 12 and 13. But no one will harm you. That's the promise. And remember, it's never guaranteed that no one will attempt to harm him. It's just that no one will harm him. So we come to the crisis moment. And now I want you to see the judgment. The judgment there in verses 14 through 18. Look there in verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, old Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if the but but if there are questions about words and names, your own law, look after it yourself. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. Now, Paul is there waiting to give his defense. He's there anxious, thinking, how can I rightly and wisely articulate why I should not be punished and banished? Why I should not suffer for the gospel's sake in this circumstance? How can I rightly point to Roman law and articulate why I have a legal right to speak the way I'm speaking? And he's about to try to defend himself and Gallio shuts him up. And now, this pagan Roman judge is used by Almighty God to keep his promises to Paul and not see a finger laid on his servant, just like he promised in Corinth. And he'll do so through the means of a pagan judge named Gallio. And Gallio begins to speak. And by the way, you're going to see a little touch of religious liberty here, which is good. Uh, the men Thursday night, we got in a conversation over this very thing. We were talking about religious liberty. And we had a good conversation over that as it came up as we were studying Romans chapter 13 in our book. Uh, and here you, go, here you see it. It's just funny how that stuff works out. We had a nice little conversation about that. A lot of good points the guys brought up. Um, and now we see that take place right here. So he, what he's saying, what, what Galio says here, Listen to the language. In verse 15. Uh, if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourself. I'm not willing to be a judge of these matters. So he sees this as an intramural argument that has to do with religion. Now again, Judaism was protected. It was, it had a, it was a legal religion there in Archaea. And he just sees Christianity as a sect of Judaism. He said, look, this is theological matters. Y'all have to work this out for yourself. This is not an issue for civil law. It's a religious debate. And by the way, this ruling right here laid the groundwork for a pretty long-standing legal standard of freedom in Rome for Christians until about midway through Nero's reign. And that changed quickly. But this right here sort of set the standard to legitimize Christians as having legal religious rights there in Rome. So it's a pretty big deal in that regard as well. 
But it's a picture here of God using this Roman judge, exercising common grace through natural revelation to dismiss this charge. And he runs them off there. Do you see that? He runs them off. He drove them away from the judgment seat there in verse 16. So he judges his judgment between uh, the Jewish claims had no civil merit. And he just dismisses it. It's a religious matter to be settled by the two factions. That's how he views it. Look there in verse 17. So they took hold of Sosthenius, the leader of the synagogue. And by the way, you think, well, wait a minute. Crispus was the leader of the synagogue and uh, he became a Christian. Yes, he did. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. He did. But he was the primary leader. He was the, the, the chief leader of the synagogue. There's a number of synagogue leaders. And probably Sophinius is just the next guy in line. So there's a number of them always. And Christus was the chief leader of the synagogue. So he's no longer there. So Sophinius steps in his place. And he is kind of a point man for bringing these charges. And it says that after, uh, after, after Gallio drove him away from the judgment seat, that they began beating him in front of the judgment seat. Now, this is a rogue group of Gentiles that began beating uh, the synagogue leader, Sosthenius. lets it; he does let it go. And it could, we, don't, we don't know exactly why this could have been. Uh, Anti-Semitism was right and wrong. That's true, although uh, Judaism was, was legal. It was a legal religion, but there was anti-Semitism in the Roman ranks. Uh, so that, that wasn't uncommon. That could have been the case here. Um, and certainly the emperor at this time had notions of anti-Semitism. Although, again, they were protected. Uh, not, not a lot happened to them until Neo, real, uh, uh, Nero, really. Um, but there was, there was rumblings. So a group of Gentiles, a rogue band of Gentiles, are allowed to just come in and beat this guy and punish this guy. Now... Is guy on the right to, to let this go? Well, we could debate about that, but certainly he makes the right ruling. And we're going to see ultimately these things play out with the hand of God overseeing it all. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we go on. So, so Athenius takes a beating here because the charges are viewed as bogus. But then notice here, but Gallio was not concerned about these matters. Now, some have taken this to say he just said, um, away with you, whatever. No, actually, he made a very specific ruling that had deep consequences. And that is healthy from a civil uh, perspective, from a civil uh, office. He made a very healthy ruling. It wasn't he was just dismissing it and could be bothered with it. He just viewed it rightly and assessed it rightly. So this is a religious matter. That's what he spoke to. This is a religious issue that you need to settle. It's an intramural debate. You need to deal with that. I deal with civil law. Case dismissed. That's what happened. So it's not that he just said, I don't have time to fool with this stuff. I don't know much about it. No, he made a ruling that had lasting effects in the Roman Empire. So this is a big deal. There's wisdom here. And this Roman authority. There's a sovereign hand of God at work in bringing about this ruling. It's not the job of civil authorities to defend the worship of the true God by suppressing 
what the government believes to be false worship. Well, let me say that one again, because this is true for us. This is true, period. This is true everywhere. We must hang on to this truth. What we see brought about here by this judge, we need to hang on to this. Let me read this to you again. It is not the job of the civil authorities to defend the worship of the true God by suppressing what the government believes to be false worship. Now, why is that? Because time could come when the true worship of God is perceived by the government to be, say it with me, false worship. That's not their role. Amen? That's not their role. And we can never be satisfied with it ever for an inkling becoming their role. So for us, that means freedom of religion for all of them. You deal with that. That's, a, that's within a civil government. That's what we live in. What they were living in here, what the Christian church there in Corinth was living in, will, will, will be birthed into and will, will live within and exist within and carry the gospel within is a Gentile civil government. Guess what? That's what you're living in. This is the same context for you. That is not the role of the civil authorities to determine what is what is right, what is right worship and what is false worship. That is not their role. If we allow that, that is a death knell to religious liberty. A death knell. So we see religious liberty established here and upheld by Gallio. Now, it's not his duty to settle theological matters. He knows that, and he rightly says, that's no concern of mine. He views it again where it should be viewed as a religious debate. There's no need to make a legal ruling on this. There's no need to turn it into a legal manner. When we turn religion, religious worship, right or wrong, however it's perceived in a certain context, when he turn that over to the civil authorities to make ruling on it, then we're giving that over. To a, to a segment of culture where it does not belong. That is not where civil authorities are allowed rightly or should be allowed rightly to come in and make rulings. So there we have to we have to accept freedom for all. Now again, there's people that have freedom to worship and worship and believe something entirely different than we do in this culture. And we, we're good with that. Why? We're not good with them not knowing the gospel. We go out and we evangelize and we call them to come to Christ. But why are we good with them having a right to worship something that we don't believe? Why were the reformers, let me back up, why were the reformers wrong here? Why is the magisterium wrong? Why don't we force people in our culture to go to church on Sunday and to give tithes to all people, non-believers just like us? Why don't we force that? Well, it certainly could lead to false conversion, but why don't we? Why are we not, in principle, uh, making them do it? Why do we not want that? It could. It could. Certainly, there could be bitterness there. It could be applied to us. That's why we don't. Different realm of authority. Different realm of authority. That's why we don't. All these things are true. Those are good thoughts. But at the bottom of the line, that can turn. 
We want people to come to faith in Christ. We want to carry the gospel and have the freedom to worship as we will, according to God's word. That's what we want. That's what we're asking. So we're not mandating a culture that is secular. A mandating upon a civil law to be put in place that has everyone exercise our beliefs externally. Again, it's where reformers were wrong there. It's where magisterium is wrong. It was forced upon them. We carry the gospel and call people to repent and believe on Christ and trust the civil authorities to give us the freedom to worship how we want, knowing that extra, that, that, that right goes out to others. And we accept that within a cultural climate uh, with the responsibility of civil authorities. That's where, that's the hill we die on. Freedom of religion, that we, that we exercise, we have the right to exercise our worship the way we want to, which is open up for everyone else to exercise the worship that we, they want to, but it gives us the freedom to not know, to know that somebody's not going to come in and take it away from us. At least on the books, in theory. That's why Stroh made a good uh, point when we was in, a, in our men's meeting last Thursday when we were talking about this. Don't, don't consider it a guarantee. It could go away. It could go. Our religious freedom could go away here. And we have to live as followers of Jesus Christ in whatever context. But as long as we have it on the books, it's a hill to die on. We fight the bitter end for it. But we just don't, you know, sit back and assume that it's just going to always be there. And that's a good point. It makes a good point. It can go away. But we see it rightly. We see it rightly here. And again, you see it played out rightly here. So it's not, if you will, a civil government's role to choose sides. And we're good with that. We're okay with that. So here we have a Gentile civil government. And we know that it rules over us in our context. It ruled over the Corinthians. It rules over us in this way. It rules over our physical well-being. It's there for protection. It's a God-given reality. Okay? The magistrates given by God. They're given by God primarily to, to protect the citizenry. To reward those who follow the law and to punish the evildoer. And to protect those uh, citizens who are, are following the law from the evildoer. That's the primary function of the civil law in any rightly ordered civil government. That's why it exists. So they rule over our physical well-being. This is where we draw the line. The civil government does not, cannot, and never will rule over our souls. Amen? Never, ever, ever. That reality belongs to God alone. That's a theological matter. And that's where the civil government stays have no business ruling over our souls. That's God's business. Okay, there's the line. That's about as, as straightforward and as basic as I can draw that. If you can see it there, that's, that's maybe a, an easy way for you to see it and work through the nuances uh, of what could play out in circumstances. Yes, our physical well-being. No, not our soul.
And so again, we see a beautiful uh, piece of wisdom and legislation here from Gallio. So this is the kind of governments that Christians should desire. Right here, this is the kind of governmental practice that we should desire. This is what we're looking for. This is what we're praying for. This is what we encourage. This is what uh, uh, um, we give thanks for. This is what we talk to our civil authorities about. This kind of action right here. This kind of protection. He made the right distinction between religious matters left to people's private conscience. And let me pause here a moment too. Religious matters are left to our private conscience. But they're not left to our private conscience to be held privately. They're to be left to our private conscience with the right to exercise them publicly. <laughs> Paul had the right to continue on to go out in the public square and carry the gospel. And he did so. To go into the synagogue if he were welcome. And he did so. If the synagogue shuts the doors, okay. He preaches right outside the doors. He preaches at the church. It's just down the corner. <coughs> but know this because this is happening in our culture. So this, this is application for you, okay? So you can write that down in your notes. Application point. This is, this is happening for us right now. We need to be have, have our eyes wide open in this regard. So we have the right of freedom of conscience. Just like Luther said, just like the reformers said, when he was there at the at, at the um, at Worms, and it was it was he was called called to take that stand, and he says, "Here I stand. I can do no other. My conscience is bound to Scripture and Scripture alone. Why? Popes can err, councils can err. The Word of God is true and eternal. So that that's a matter of conscience. Now we live and hold to that." We want religious freedom based on our conscience, but the exercise of our conscience flows over into outside context. It flows over into our behavior and actions and decisions in society. Now, I'll give you some examples of how this is. Um, this must we must have this definition and stand firm here. So we have politicians, active politicians. Run, that, that are running our country right now, that are Catholic by name. And so in order to uh, stay with their political views and, and political reasons that they see as healthy for them and beneficial for them, which one of which would be to promote abortion, but as a good Catholic, they can't promote abortion. So here's how they get around it, because abortion is something that's acted out in public. So they, there was a deal made long ago I won't bother you with the details there. But here's the point. So there was deal made with politicians through certain liberal wings of the Catholic Church that you can claim to hold personally to being opposed to abortion personally. But then you separate that from the act of supporting abortion publicly in a cultural context. And so you're still good. Because you personally are opposed to it uh, there are certain politicians that have done this for years and years. You know them well. You're personally opposed to us too. Top dogs right now. This is their view. To remain in good standings with part of the Catholic Church, which is quite fractured at this point. But I, I digress. Personally, I'm opposed to it. But that's separated from how it's how my, my opinion and my thoughts on it as it plays out in culture. That is a dichotomy that cannot be drawn. 
in Christianity. Our conscience are bound to Scripture, and because they're bound to Scripture, our actions, how we live out in public, are bound to that conscience, which is tied to Scripture. We cannot draw a line and try to falsely separate the two. They're inextricably linked. And this is how you have um, the now director of Human Health and Resources, Uh, attacking religious liberty, attacking Christian institutions, attacking uh, Christian um, uh, agencies, pregnancy crisis centers. So Mr. Bracera would say, well, Christians have a right personally to be opposed to abortion. Christians have a right personally to hold to the teachings uh, that, that, that are opposed to homosexuality, that are opposed to transgenderism, that are opposed to homosexual marriages. They have the right to believe that, but they can't exercise that right in a public setting. In other words, you can't have a Christian school that says we have a standard of practice or principles. And to be a student here, we expect you to follow the standard of practice of principles which uh, says that uh, no, no one is allowed to practice homosexuality. No one is to, to promote uh, transgenderism. That's not allowed. So Becerra would go after that. He's gone after uh, pregnancy crisis centers as attorney general in California for years, saying that, yes, you could be opposed to abortion privately, but you can't exercise that in a public setting and have any funding. So this is federal funding that we're talking about. That's why, by the way, for us, Christian institutions, Christian schools, keep your hands out of federal money. It'll save yourself a lot of trouble. So we think through this. But Sarah's after us right now there on those issues. Abortion. Christian institutions keeping Christian principles, keeping biblical principles in play and demanding them for their students. Demanding students adhere to Christian principles and now there's a lot of pushback there and if they've had their fingers in the federal money they're in trouble so a lot of things to think through in our context here the civil government is not is established by God to address criminal matters protection of a civil rights to punish the evildoer and to protect the citizens human government deals with justice between men and not the worship of God. That's where we have to draw a hard and fast line, right there. Now, a civil government should not determine justice between men based on differing views of worship. That's what we cannot have. We must accept that there are different views of worship and let that go. And not allow that to become a civil matter. We just carry the gospel. We carry the gospel truth. We want the freedom to do it. And we don't want civil authorities coming in and, and determining justice between us and anyone else as it relates to rights to worship and truth or false issues concerning, concerning theological matters. That's to stay in the religious realm, not doesn't belong to civil authorities. Now, we have that in the Bill of Rights, don't we? Be thankful for that. For us personally, be thankful for that. 
That's a beautiful thing. We want to hold on to that. That's a hill to die on. We have religious, we have religious uh, liberty. It's, it's founded right there in the Bill of Rights for us. We have freedom of religion for all. It's appropriate. An appropriate view of separation of church and state right there in the Bill of Rights. It's appropriate. We should be thankful for that. Now, in our circles, particularly in reform circles, there's this notion of theonomy that's kind of come onto the scene lately. So I, I want to speak to that for a moment uh, in light of this context here. So just uh, for definition, theonomy is uh, a preferred literal, specific, and detailed application of the Mosaic civil law that should be overlaid onto all society, not just the church, but all of society. That would be us dictating to non-believers that they should live under the Mosaic civil law. That's a concept of theonomy in brief. Uh, and that is for modern civil governments as well. That's out there mostly. It's, it's in reform circles. It's, uh, it's had, it's, it's, um, had some, some, uh, some tread lately. I'll say this. To seek to impose the Mosaic civil law on a nation is no belief in separation of church and state. That's something that I would warn against. The church is not the state. We don't impose Christianity upon society by force. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to carry the gospel and beg God to give us strength to do it diligently and wisely and winsomely and see him fill his church to his glory by his strength. So we strive for civil liberty. We seek to worship and evangelize freely and peacefully. And that also is a hill to die on. So civil law at its best is rooted in Christianity. We've had that. Now, that erodes over time with all cultures, wherever Christianity does have a foundation and time marches on, the culture by nature grows more liberal in its view. That's a pattern that we can see among men from generation to generation. But as a standard here, I want you to see this. Uh, civil law is at its best when it's rooted in the moral law of God. That's a healthy thing. We have a blessing. That that's something to thank God for. That has been established in your culture that you live in. That's a huge blessing. Know that. Rejoice in it. Thank God for it. Now, civil law is most conducive for human flourishing when it reflects the natural law of God. So, let me give you a couple examples that would be contrary to that. So when you find a transgender Olympic, female Olympic weightlifter preparing to compete in the Olympics, so this is a man that is that is uh, that has taken measures to now call himself a woman and taking uh, physical matters to to try to to exercise that out physically now remains still a man disguised as a woman reclaiming in sin to be a woman and now given right to compete against real women in Olympics in Olympic weightlifting that's not law that is based on the natural law of God which would be he created them male and female. 
You're going the wrong direction when you see these things. Hormonal suppressants and gender reassignment surgery for teens and preteen kids is a picture of civil law that does not reflect the natural law of God. Gender non-binary education classes for kindergartners violates creative order and is not conducive for the culture and is not reflective of natural law. So you see here examples of how culture goes wrong badly when it does no longer reflect God's natural law. All civil law that is based on Christian morals rooted in the moral law of God is good for human flourishing. When we leave that, the less reality of human flourishing. Now, to us, and how that applies to us, regardless of the circumstances, our command, our call, our duty never changes. We are called to carry the gospel in whatever circumstance we're in. And we're to do that knowing that our God is with us and no one can lay a finger on us. Now, theoretically, of course, that's literally not true, but theoretically, theologically, no one can lay a finger on us in terms of stopping our obedience to God, whatever the context is, until he's done with us. Our call, our command never changes. So yet, we should not seek to impose church attendance upon Christianity or, or, or upon non-Christians or force it by civil law. Although we see a slide, we see the reality of a slide in our culture, we cannot give up the beauty of religious liberty and try to start imposing our wills or trying to start to, to insert ourselves in certain civil laws. Now, are there appropriate ways to try to lobby for certain civil laws? Yes. Would we like to see uh, the, the federal uh, uh, health care, uh, federally funded health care, pushed back upon? Would we like to see that? Would we like to see Christian uh, business owners not be coerced by federal health care to have to pay uh, for um, uh, pay, pay their employees for birth control? That would include abortifacants. Would we like that? Yes. Should we push back on that? Yes. So, so there's areas of assessment here. I'm, draw, I'm drawing a larger point. We don't mandate Christianity upon a culture by civil law. Are there elements where we can push on a civil law? That would be an example. One right there. Yes, yes, we should. But now I want you to. I want. I want to give you one last note here as we close out. And I was listening uh, uh, to a sermon on this text from Sam Walden. So he made a point. Uh, verses uh, 17, and, and just again, I just want to kind of note something on there by way of reminder, verse 18, that uh, I thought was beautiful, I hadn't thought about. So um, I want to give credit there, and then I'm going to lay this out for you. It's a beautiful encouragement. I didn't see this text. Um, so it's just God's providence. I happened across that, and it was great. It was, it was timely for me. But notice that in verse 17. So certain days they laid hold of Sosthenius, and, and they beat him. Now, was it a rogue mob? Yes. Uh, could have been a void? Yes. Could, could, have, uh, uh, could, could the judge have stepped in? Yes. But the reality is this man was punished for a wrongdoing. 
and he was punished by God in space and time. See, he got, he got a little, he got roughed up a little. But we looked at that in our morning study, right? Eli and his sons. And often, I want you to see this often, Daniel mentioned this earlier, often we see the consistency of God throughout time punishing the evildoer and preserving the godly. Because we do, oftentimes we do think in our context and we just run to Psalm uh, 72. Well, if they just get away with every stinking rotten thing all throughout this life, at least one day, God will judge. His name will not be smeared. God will reckon with the wicked, and that is true. But I want you to see that God is bringing about salvation all through time. He was working out His salvation for His glory. And part of working out His salvation in space and time is this continuous, this continuous pattern of punishing the evildoer in space and time and preserving His people. Does he always preserve his people? No, sometimes his people are wrongly punished, wrongly abused, wrongly uh, 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 martyred. And they're quickened to glory. But as a com- consistent pattern of his story, the meta narrative, you see this reality over and over, and this should be a great encouragement to you. Over and over in space and time, he punishes the evildoer and he preserves the godly. Over and over and over. So don't miss that. Look at Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 9. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pit of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world and the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous lot, pressed by sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Right there is that principle spelled out for us in Scripture. So the reality of delivering the righteous and punishing the wicked will continue in its cycle in space and time until the final day of judgment at the end of the age. And that is healthy for you to see. Healthy on both ends. It is a warning to you if you sit here and think, children, somehow that you can ride in on the coattails of God's goodness to your parents by quickening them from spiritual death to quick to spiritual life. That you can somehow hang out in a healthy circle that God and his providential care has given to you and that you're just going to be right in the end. It's going to be okay. It's not the case. God calls you to repent and believe the gospel. Here 
In this context, it's con- context is kind providence, but it doesn't make you right with God. Only repentance and faith in Jesus Christ makes you right with God. And there's a reality that we see that reminds us of that every day he's punishing the wicked. And in some context, somewhere, clearly in space and time, and at the same time, he's preserving his people because he is calling a people out to himself. And it's a picture of his saving work in humanity until he is done and he returns at the end of the age. And you're in one or two camps. Everyone sitting here, everyone on the sound of my voice is in one or two camps. And that's a picture for us. It's not something that we feel, uh, that, that we uh, ponder about and we theorize about. That, oh, it's coming someday. You see it every day. Every day. It's a cycle that applies to us and that calls us and that warns us to repent. And that encourages the believer to know that God is faithful. He's preserved you this far because he intends to use you for his glory and declaring his glorious gospel and to living to his glory and to be a reflection of his worth and his glory in your Christian life. And he'll preserve it until he's done with you. That is a truth. That's a gospel truth. And at the same time, we see the wicked being punished in space and time. Again and again and again. And it reminds us, this is not some theory that's out yonder. This is God exercising his work of salvation sovereignly among man to his glory. And it's a warning and it's an encouragement. So for us, by application, may God grant us grace to trust the Lord and serve him with boldness. Serve him with boldness. Now, these are perverse and precarious times that we're living in, to say the least. Nothing new among men, but it's real. And in these times, God is judging the wicked and he's preserving the righteous. And he continues to do so. It happens generation after generation, judging the wicked, preserving the righteous. It's part of God working out his sovereign will and salvation among man. Believer, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear what man can do to you. God is with you. You obey his call upon your life. Do not fear. Do not fear the perceived power of our present authorities. Oh, we in a time, we live in a time where our civil government is coming after our religious liberty. Yes. Yes, we are. As Joe mentioned, could it all go away? Yes, it could. What I'm saying to you, according to God's word, is don't fear. Don't fear them. They have no authority over your soul. They have no authority over God's call upon your life. Don't fear them. And what did we say in in our morning study, right? God honors those who honor him. Don't fear them. Judgment will come to the wicked in this generation. Now, that that is not a statement of arrogance. That is not a statement of joy in terms of some uh, some frail fleshly emotion. That is a theological fact. Now, you rest in that fact 
humble. There's a lot to think about there. Could be you. That's not, that's grace. And in grace, know that that's true. Warn, warn a depraved world of that truth. And you rest in it humbly with thanksgiving. But it's true. Judgment will come to the, this wicked generation in various shapes and forms. But it will come. And it will come in space and time. Serve the Lord with a feeling of invincibility. Because that's exactly what you have in the Lord. He is with you. And there you are invincible. But he's done with you this side of glory. It's just that simple. He will preserve you until he calls you home or until he comes back. Isn't that good? That's a theological fact. That's a biblical truth. That's simple. That was a short, that was a short sentence. I wrote that myself. That's simple to understand. That's easy. He's going to preserve you until he calls you home or until he comes back. Exercise your faith. Live by faith. Walk by faith. Know that your God is with you and live out your life in obedience to his call upon you according to biblical truth. And I just want you to mark here in 18. Paul remained there many days longer. You know how he remained there many days longer? Because God kept his promise. That's how he remained there. A year and six months. Why is he there a year and six months? Because they didn't kill him. They wanted to kill him. They lined him up to kill him. They took him before the judge to kill him. They didn't lay a finger on him. Because God came to his servant personally when he was at his weakest moment. When the grand apostle was just about to fold it up, at least for a while. He said, I'm with you. And I'm going to lay a finger on you here. That's grace. The same is true for you. This is a sovereign faithfulness of Christ. Paul was delivered. He remained there. The promise of Christ came true exactly as he said it. His promises were kept in space and time. It's part of actual history. We got an inscription uh, 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 of, of the judge here. And Mark seemed there in Achaia as who he says he was, as who it says he was here in the scripture, right there at that point in time, right when Paul was uh, described in the scripture as coming through there. We've got a beautiful piece of history that said all this is right there. It's factual. It happened in space and time. Of course we know it's true. God's word is true. This happened. And God used a pagan Roman judge to deliver Paul without Paul speaking a word. Now, what about you? Do you struggle with trusting God? Do you struggle with trusting the fact that he'll keep his promises? Oh, not to somebody else, but to you. Right. We're not a problem thinking that he might keep his promise to somebody else. Right. Yeah, he'll keep his promises to March, of course, man. But me? I don't know. You struggle with that? Walk by faith. Give glory to God. Give thanks to God for his promises kept and live with bold assurance in the promises that he will keep. Pray for strength to obey God in all circumstances. You can trust God. 
You can trust God in every circumstance to work for his glory and for your spiritual good. In every circumstance he brings into your life, you can trust him. He's going to be working it out for his glory and for your good if you belong to him. If you're a true child of the one true God, he's going to be working it out for his glory that you might praise him and it's going to be for your spiritual good. Now, if you're here as an unbeliever, that's not true for you. None of that's true for you. And you can't hide in church context. And if you have family members that are outside the faith, they can't hide from God in their relationship to you. If you have co-workers that are outside the faith, they can't hide from God and his righteous wrath that abides upon them outside of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ just because they know you. For the unbeliever, wrath abides upon you. But know this, Christ forgives sin. He forgives the sin of sinners. And he grants the power to live in righteous obedience to him. If you confess your sin and repent and believe on Christ, you will find a perfect Savior. If you do not, the wrath of God will remain upon you and he will rightly judge you. And that judgment may come severe in this life and eternal forever, or it might come just eternal forever. As you happily tiptoe through this world with the wrath of God abiding upon you until the end. But you will meet your maker and you will meet him as judge, righteous judge of your soul. who will cast you into a little hell forever only to abide in his presence of wrath or you will meet him as savior in the person and work of Jesus Christ who redeems sinners and reconciles them to God. One or true. I mean, one or two are true. There is no in between. Turn and repent. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for our time here. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for your comfort. We thank you for your encouragement. We thank you that you are with your people. And the perilous times do not dictate to us. And the leaders that uh, that reign over us according to your sovereign will as civil authorities, that does not dictate to us. Your word is the means through which our conscience is bound. Your truth resides within us and you alone rule over our souls. We ask that you would help us to trust you. Help us to walk in faith. Help us to see that we are invincible in Christ, that we might that we might live out our life to your glory, that we might go out as vessels displaying your glory and carrying your gospel, knowing that you are faithful to the very end. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.